House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren, Mr. Uh, David uh, Martino. This is supposed yes. to be bad week. So <laughs> this is the bad week. I was supposed to be calling you names. Ah, David, uh, <laughs> bad, bad dressing Martino. Yeah, there you go, David. That's a start. David Bald Martino. Well, that's that's basically <laughs> true. I can't even make it look like I have hair anymore. Oh, used to be able to angle the camera just right. And no. so you go into the hair hairdresser and they say, "Well, what are you here for?" Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it's been it's like, been at least twenty years for me. So mm. at least you know I'm I'm too lazy to shave my head though. Well, yeah, <laughs> you know, get big curly, so you can wrap it around. You know, get the big yeah. sideburns and wrap that around like they used to yeah. do in the sixties. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> Make it look like you have hair. You know. Yeah, it'd be perfect. I like it. Well, you know, anything it. anything to make you look better. That's right. That's right. Thank you. Um, we've got we've got a, a writer returning, and he's got a new book uh, coming out or come out. We'll find out. And of course, it's called Velma Gone Awry, and it's a Brooklyn Eight Ballo mystery. And it's Mr. Matt Cost. Thank you for being here, Matt. Well, thank you for having me on the premier mystery radio show in the world. <laughs> well, of course, That's right? Yeah. <laughs> Who else would would we have? You know, and 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 Velma. <laughs> Um, what part of her went to her awry? Most of her, except her mind. Her mind knew exactly where she were, was, but her body, it was floating around Brooklyn in the 1920s. So was mine. <laughs> <laughs> I find this interesting because you write 1920, you're writing back in time, but you bring in kind of popular names and you have your characters um, interact with them or come across them or, you know, you make it a part of the story. How, how, that's kind of interesting. How do you decide who you're going to do? Who are you going to have in there? You know, it sort of all started off and, you know, I realized that Brooklyn in the 1920s was one of the more fascinating places in the entire world. And for one of the big reasons for this was the legendary figures that lived in that time period. So as I came across a person that really, you know, just did it for me and said, wow, I want to learn more. I want to go down this rabbit hole and see what I can learn about them. Uh, then, you know, they became part of the book. So some became larger, some that I thought were going to be involved, you know, kind of fell off the wayside a little bit as others became more interesting. But that's the direction I took. Do you, you try to stick to the truth with them? or kind of popular opinion of them at the time, or, or, or do you use the kind of how people feel about them today? Um, I absolutely try and keep to who they were. I'm obviously putting them into a fictional book, so, you know, some of their actions are things that they might not have done. And the one that I'm writing that's coming out in 2024, we've got Dorothy Parker and Goggles driving an automobile across uh, Gravesend in Brooklyn as, you know, gangsters chase them. So that probably didn't really happen to Dorothy Parker, but I try and keep her dialogue very accurate to that witty, caustic, you know, wit that she was at the time. So how, how do you, yeah, so that's kind of what you do. You kind of find out 
what kind of dialogue they used at the time or how they acted or interacted um, outside of their profession and then try to use that? Uh, outside of their profession, but inside of their profession as well, you know, I mean, you know, again, to use Dorothy Parker, you know, she was a writer for several different magazines, but one of her more famous things is being at the Algonquin uh, Hotel and, you know, the round table that she uh, was one of the primary figures of there. And you might consider that her professional persona as well. So, you know, taking things from that is really who she was, um, not just who she might be in the privacy of her home. How do you get into the mind of your historical characters? Do you have to do a lot of research into that, or is that something that's just more imagination? Um, I, I, I'd like to say that I do a lot of research because that's the correct answer to use <laughs> uh, <laughs> as a writer. So, you know, I, I try and do as much as I can, but, you know, I, I think as writers and whatnot, we all always feel like we could have done more, and, you know, there's other things that we could have done or researched or I could have read one more book or one more, uh, you know, newspaper article or whatever about these people. But I, I try and get into their minds. So what, what, what is the um, idea set behind this book? Like what, what is it that you're, you're doing in this book? Is this, this is not connected to any of your other books, is it? No, no, this is the debut of what I, Hope to be a new mystery series um, coming out April 12th, and it will be um, uh, set in 1923 Brooklyn, and I have a detective named Eight Ballot. Uh, I always feel that I have to explain the moniker to start it off. He was the eighth child born to Hungarian parents. He had four brothers and three sisters. And his mother was so certain that he was going to be a girl child that she had picked out Marguerite as a name for him, but not a male name. So when he surprised her, came out as a male, dad was off to sea. Uh, she just wrote down on the birth papers, eight, uh, to signify that he was the eighth child and meaning to change that and give him a name later, but she never did. So eight the numeral eight, Ballot, is our protagonist, who is a PI in 1923 Brooklyn. He's just out of World War One, as is much of America, and uh, trying to find his way. And into the office walks a German businessman who might have some lack of scruples to him, and he wants eight Ballot to find his flapper daughter, who is 25 years old, who has gone awry. And that sets the story off as Eight Bellow and his group of friends try and track down this flapper, Velma Hartman, who has gone awry and is flitting around Brooklyn and New York City and up into Harlem and uh, just one step ahead of people and nobody knows quite why. What, what do you think makes a really good mystery? like a mystery story like this? Um, I, You know, I, I, I think all the pieces are necessary, which would be the setting. So Brooklyn in the 1920s is a fantastic setting. But I think that you really need, you know, bright, colorful characters who are brought to life and aren't just, you know, flaccid and flat on the, uh, on the pages, but, you know, become real people. 
And, of course, then you have to take those characters and have them follow along a plot, a storyline. And for a mystery, I think that you need a twist, you need a turn, or, you know, two or three or seven or eight or maybe ten twists in turn just to keep the reader guessing and uh, try and, you know, lead it to a place that nobody expected it to be. But when it gets to that conclusion, everybody says, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, because Velma ended up being a man, right? Did you read the book? Because I really, you know, I think we're going some spoiler alerts here. <laughs> yeah, um, that's it. I knew it. Um, it's kind of it's kind of crazy, but um, so you you also have to put the setting in the 1920s. So you have to kind of have that a feel for that time, like the words they used, the slang they used. Um, what police really did back in the 20s, because it's quite a bit different than now. Um, absolutely, and you say I had to, but I might say that I got to, and that was an entirely <laughs> enjoyable piece. Uh, yeah. You know, there's lots of different ways to research that sort of thing, but I think one of the more, uh, something that's a little unique that I haven't heard of a lot of other people do is I do subscribe to newspapers.com, which archives all the newspapers from, you know, all of time, basically. Yeah. So I could read any of the newspapers from 1923 in Brooklyn and New York. I chose to read the Brooklyn Eagle, and I read that every morning for a year. So not just the stories and the articles and what movies were playing, you know, but the advertisements of what kind of hats were being sold and, what an automobile costs. And so, you know, I, I found that getting into that newspaper, you know, I'd read my local newspaper, and then I'd move over to the computer and I'd, I'd read online newspapers.com, the Brooklyn Eagle, starting January 1st, 1923 through the end of the year. You know, one day at a time, but yeah. Yeah, I do the same thing. I, I'm fascinated with how there's a lot of stories that, could be written today, you know, different language, but the same sort of um, the same sort of complaining and fights that were going on in the twenties were really the same as what they're doing now, you know. Oh, absolutely! You know, they everybody, you know, I'm a history guy, and people say that history goes in cycles, and it absolutely does. And I, I think where we are in, you know, 2023 is, you know. A uh, 100-year cycle of 1923. You know, there's a lot of you know new change coming about and things happening, but there's also a lot of repression and you know pushback on that new change. You know, again, in the second book in that series, that's one of the things that I'm going to really get deeply into is that press back and repression that's happening uh, to you know that flapper lifestyle, which is really what you know, Velma Ganarai is about is the emergence, these different groups, especially women, who said, no, I'm not staying at home anymore. You know, I'm going to go out, I'm going to enjoy life, and I'm going to do my thing, and I don't have to get married and stay at home and raise kids. And uh, But but we're going to hit the pushback on that, just like we're hitting the pushback recently on a lot of things that have emerged in uh 2023. Right, right. Yeah, because I live the flapper lifestyle. I, that, that's what I heard. <laughs> Things get a little crazy up there in British Columbia. Oh, a little. 
crazy, wild, you know, <laughs> swinging from the trees here. I'm, I'll tell you, they, they stay away from me. Um, do you think about how you're going to write violence and sex in this book? Like, is it conscious to you or do you avoid it? I'm trying to be careful with it, but I think it's a reality of life is violence and sex and foul language. And, you know, you can't avoid uh, these things. I try and be as authentic and real as I can. As a matter of fact, I just, this Velma Got a Ride just got a review in Indie Tale magazine which is a bit of a romance, uh, mystery, suspense, sci-fi magazine. And uh, one of the things they do is they give a rating, but then they also give a tea kettle rating for steaminess. And the most you can get is five <laughs> tea kettles. And Velma got five tea kettles. And I kind of been saying to people that I know, really? I, you know, I don't think it's that steamy. And everybody's going, yeah. It is. <laughs> well, I guess it depends on what you're doing uh, outside of the book life. Are you living a flapper life? Uh, no, no, I don't live too much of a flapper life up here uh, in Maine. Um, New England, I guess David's in New England with me as well, but uh, we're just trying to survive yep. the winter right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, it's not sunny and warm? Uh, you know, cloudy, no. freezing rain and 32, but... It's close to sunny and warm. <laughs> wow. God, you guys are worse off than I am. What's going on? <laughs> it's a little better here near Boston, but, you know, I find this um, fascinating sort of idea. So you're already doing book two, but I, I'm thinking, how are you? So you kind of know ahead of time what you want to do in the next book. I wouldn't say that I typically know what I'm going to do in the next book before the last book is done. I'm currently writing three different series and uh, standalone as well. After completing Velma Gone Awry, which was uh, a little bit more than a year ago that I completed it as it goes on its publication route, uh, since then I've written two books in my other series, uh, Mainly Wicked, the fifth in my Mainly Mystery series coming out in August, and uh, Pirate Trap, the fifth book in my Clay Wolf Trap series coming out in December. And I finished the, and then, and at that point, I got back to writing the sequel to this, uh, which is going to be called City Gone Askew and will be due out in April of 2024. Well, how do you organize? Your series. How do you how do you keep your continuity? Do you have a series bible? Do you use other tools to keep track of everything, or are you able to kind of keep track of everything in your head? Um, I you know it's a series bible. I guess is the closest. I wouldn't call it a bible. I shy away from having a bible, but um, I do have an outline that I keep of each book, and that outline off you know sometimes is what I'm going to write. And sometimes it's what I have written. So at the completion of having written a book, I do have an outline that I can always refer back to. And it helps me when writing that book. But then it helps me, you know, when I need to check details for from future books to make sure that, you know, this character really does have, you know, one blue eye and one green eye. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're a wolf trap. You have to be careful. Yeah. Is it, you were saying that commenting on Connor O'Sullivan's, is it as good as my wolf trap? <laughs> Are you kidding? I'm not going to say a thing. He, he ever, that guy lives in Montana and goes out and 
rips a bear bear apart and eats it. So, no, <laughs> I can't. I'm not saying he. he I have to say that that's the first time I've got radio silence from you ever. Well, because, (laughs) you know, it scared me even talking to him on Zoom. I was worried. I'll tell you. No, he's a savage. Good writer. But no, I'm not not touching that. (laughs) Not touching that one. He'll come hunt me down. And my dog, too. Well, well, I'm glad that you messaged me privately and told me that mine was much better than his. <laughs> well, thanks. I appreciate that. Time to move, you know. Yeah. Since Al's gone awry, he has to move out into the sticks. Hide. Um, Just give him my address like you do everybody else. Well, this is true. That might work. <laughs> David would probably be safe with it with all the martial arts training that he does, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. He's pretty big. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you know, a young Arnold, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know. I'm staying away from that one. <laughs> so, listen, um, you guys in Maine are pretty, um, you guys are kind of pretty close, you writers up in Maine. I notice you guys really stick together, stick out for each other. What do you think it is about Maine that does that? Two months of summer and ten months of uh, winter, probably. <laughs> we have a hard time getting across the borders. But no, seriously, I, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure. But I would have to agree with you that the writing community is fantastic up here in Maine. Uh, whether it be the publishing or the writers or uh, the the readers that support these writers. Uh, it's pretty fantastic, so it's been nice. Yeah, I haven't seen that kind of uh, an effort, or it's just the, just the way I see it. Anytime, that's how you can know main writers because it doesn't matter if they're in the same genre or not; they just all sort of stick up for each other. Which I don't quite get the same feeling in other areas as I see in Maine. Maine is just like uh, unless you guys are all working in the same house and all writing, just using different names. <laughs> yeah. We're- we're all, actually you know, all Stephen King, just using pen names. <laughs> I thought so. See, now we're going to find true. out some real dirt here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, but who do you use instead of Stephen King for your image? Um, models, male models that are uh, called <laughs> from agencies. So that's, you know, oh. both the images that David and uh, I have right now are probably been taken from those male model images. Yes. Must have been pretty old models. <laughs> <laughs> models from the seventies. <laughs> it's kind of like a retro, retro models. That's you can get them cheaper that way. <laughs> exactly. How many? How how do you end a series? Like I've never done a series like this where you have characters and you're running through and stuff. How do you know when it's over? Or how do you decide? I will have to be perfectly honest with you. I don't know how I end a series because I haven't yet. I have five books in my Mainly Mystery series and five in my Clay Wolf series. And I've been tentatively thinking that six is going to be the number. Um, So I guess if you were to have me back next year or the year after, Al, I would uh, be able to answer that. But I haven't figured it out yet. I'm wondering if I kill somebody or, you know... What do what do I do? Yeah, I always wonder about that. And and if you do kill them, like what what makes you feel it's time to kill them? Like what is it that that you just go? Well, I'm tired of this guy. 
I'm tired of this character. I'm tired of whatever. And then you just go, well, that's over. I, I always wonder. About um, that. Yeah, it's sort of two different things. I mean, if I were to kill the protagonist, that would be to end the series. I did just write an article for uh, a magazine. I forget which one. Um, you know, how to, to kill or not to kill. You know, every once in a while in my series, I sort of feel like, okay, you know, we got to make this real. Because if every if all the good guys always walk out at the end and everybody's high fiving and you know slapping hands and bumping elbows, eh, then then there's no real stakes for the reader. They know that it's going to end up all okay. So every once in a while, in a book or in a series, I say, okay, we got to kill somebody likable here, and uh, then we narrow it down. Figure it out who it's going to be, and we kill them. <laughs> savage, you know. So, what do you want people to get out of your books? Like in this series here, like is 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 this? Do you have any meaning to this book? Um, you know, it, it it didn't really start out to be anything more than an appreciation of Brooklyn in the 1920s and a good tale that's going to keep you guessing and twisting. But, you know, as these things tend to get to be, you get deeper into them and you realize that, you know, there are deeper issues involved and uh, uh, some of the good people of the time might not have been all that good and some of the bad might not have been all that bad. And, you know, certainly again, you know, into the second book that I'm writing now, I start to go deep into the entire eugenics movement, the KKK, and their associations with Nazis. So it it, it always, you know, gets a little heavier as I progress, I think. You, I guess you have to be pretty sensitive to how you write that or how you, how you present it these days. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it, it's a delicate dance writing authentic history as you do a little more nonfiction, I guess, but writing authentic fiction of a historical time period without offending today's political sensibilities that realizes how wrong some of the uh, mannerisms and actions and verbiage was. And, uh, you know, you want to showcase that some of the antagonists, the bad people, the baddies, the villains, uh, did act in this manner but you don't want to offend today's readers by doing that. So that that is a very delicate dance. Yeah, I, I frankly, I don't know how you do it, uh, because when you write true crime, even even publishers will give me hassles if I use much of the language some of the people actually used, and they'll want to change it. And I'm thinking, well, but this is true. This is what people really were, that's what they said. So how do you... How do you change what people say and consider it nonfiction? In fiction, I guess you can do that, but do you really want to make it so soft that they don't understand how bad it really was? Yeah, now it's, you know, I, I have come down in some of my historicals, you know, this one, uh, another book that I wrote, Love in a Time of Hate, set in New Orleans after Reconstru uh, during Reconstruction after the Civil War. And, you know, it was, it was a time of a lot of hate and a lot of anger. I uh, have realized that I have to remove is some of the 
offensive slang, you know, slurs. And that seems to be universally said. You can't do that, even if the person would have said it that way at that time. But at the same time, you know, it seems like you can get away with that antagonist killing another person because of the color of their skin or their gender or whatever thing offends them. Um, and that's acceptable in the books, but, you know, a slur is not. So I, I guess you just have to go with the, t- the, the the current times and, you know, follow what the trends are. Yeah, no, I know, I know. I, I just think it's, uh, I think in a way it's doing it just, you know, it's not it's not serving the people well because things are what they are, you know, especially back then. They they were what they were. People said what they did, and you don't have to go to town with it, but people need to know. Because sometimes I still turn on, on Turner Classic Movies and I'll see a movie from, the 60s and their their language is crazy in how they behaved but it's effective it, it, it gives you a feeling of how it really was yeah well i i hear that they are cleaning up some of these old authors uh agatha christie books that are being republished yeah. or removing some language that was in them yeah i don't know see and i'm not sure what i think about that i guess it, it is what it is it's out of my hands but um I don't know. I think sometimes it's 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 never appropriate to be how bad people were uh, to each other. Even today, they're still bad to each other, and it's not appropriate. But I um I don't know um, if taking it out of you know popular press items is is really helping it any because it's still there. Yeah, you know, when I'm writing, I feel like if I'm showcasing that person as being bad by doing or saying what they're good, what they're saying, then it should be acceptable. But I found that it isn't necessarily. So, you know, what would be more difficult even is, you know, a lot of people that were supposedly good people at the time were using some of that language are often cases were using that language. And, you know, it'd be even more difficult to show them as a good person using language like that. So it, it's very difficult. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have that problem writing about Dave, you know, because... <laughs> because you have a hard time, you know. Except he's a bad person. Hard yeah. time saying anything nice about yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, he's... You know, who else goes out doing karate in a dress and saying saying such bad language and listening to yeah. heavy metal music? It just doesn't... All at once. <laughs> what kind of a character is that? See, it's unbelievable. Yeah. It's not believable. They don't believe. <laughs> no, I, I, I just real. on Facebook videos. Be I've real. been learning some martial arts from Dave, so I've been practicing in my oh, living perfect. room and you know following what he's doing and breaking lamps. <laughs> <laughs> you think he does good on the videos? You should see the video of him in the buffet. <laughs> He can carry three plates at t- at a time. That's um, right. Yeah. And roll. Yeah. He's <laughs> an animal. <laughs> so so who, what, who do you like right now? Who are you reading yourself? Um, you know, as I get further enmeshed into writing, I find myself reading more and more books by people I know. Um, so currently I'm writing a book by uh, J.B. Manning called uh, The the Richter the Mighty, and it's sort of a, a madcap, political, absurd sort of thing, which is 
out of my normal genre, you know, I often read uh, mostly mystery, some historical stuff. Uh, but it was kind of nice to get a little splash and do something different like that. Um, you know, on the bigger front, I do like the, you know, big names of David Baldacci and Michael Patter- uh, Michael Connolly. Sorry. Never heard of him. <laughs> uh, but then I like my, you know, smaller writers, some from my uh, writing groups and some from my publishing houses, people like uh, B.J. Magnani and Kevin St. Jar. You know, I can always go back and read Elmore Leonard books, uh, some of the older Carl Hyacin books, certainly Robert Parker books, uh, genre, you know, that somebody who I think sort of shaped me. Um, and I'm not sure how many people are really doing that genre these days. Uh, the sort of hard, you know, the hard nosed PI, uh, with a lot of action and, you know, tough guy sort of things. It's uh, branched out a lot from that, and we're getting a lot of different types of reading, and, you know, it's, and I'm enjoying some of that, too. What was your favorite in uh, Old Mysteries? I, I certainly like many of the, you know, Robert Parker's The Good Wolf Manuscript and uh, things like that. Um, the Elmore Leonard's uh, were good, but if I go old, for me, it would be the Hardy Boys and... Uh, Nancy Drew and Encyclopedia Brown, because they're kind of the ones that whet my <laughs> appetite for the whole genre, you know, moving forward. Right, right. They were from the 1800s. Right? <laughs> uh, geez, I think some of that, did the Hardy Boys start like in the 1920s? So, you know, we're back there with Marlowe and some of those people. <laughs> so, so what do you suggest for someone that wants to write a book? What would you tell them to do? Like someone that's writing maybe and they're sitting in their room and they don't know what to do, you know, publish or self-publish or any of this stuff going on because it's, it's a different world now. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess that's fairly open-ended. I'd started off with, you know, just write, you know. So if you want to write a book, you have to write. And, you know, too many people get caught up in, you know, researching for far too long and never pulling, you know, the trigger and, you know, starting the writing process. Or you start writing and you get bogged down into look, going down those rabbit holes and uh, get away from the writing. I think uh, social media has pulled people away from writing in many instances, and it's just hard for them. I know the, the pandemic ruled in in March of 2020, and I started writing more than ever, but I knew a lot of people who were writing less. And I'm like, you're trapped at home? Why are you writing less? And it was just too much stimuli coming at them. So to block out this stimuli to write uh, is step one so that you can write a book. And then, of course, you have to edit it, you know, 450 times to make sure that it's perfect because there's nothing people like more than is to find an error in your writing. And, uh, you know, hold it up to the spotlight and have everybody, you know, laugh at you. Uh, so after you get to that point and you're ready to go to a publisher, you know, it's it's a tough, tough call out there. I've decided to go. I got published by a small publisher called Encircle Publications, and I've really enjoyed that route because I've got to know the publishers and the people that work there. 
and they work very closely with me. And uh, we have each other's back, and I've got to know the other authors as well. We have, you know, happy hour nights. Uh, used to be every Thursday night, but now a couple Wednesdays a month uh, where people get on Zoom from all over the world. And, you know, we have a cocktail and, you know, talk about writing and what's going on with just the authors at my publisher. So I would, you know, that's been a great experience for me, but much like writing is a different experience for every single person, I think publishing probably is too. And some people would rather go self-publish or uh, it's always nice to get the big publisher. But I've heard a lot of horror stories from the big publisher, you know, if they're not backing you anymore and they're ready to, you know, cut the ties at the first sign of, you know, you losing readership. And so uh, I, I like very much where I am. So to paraphrase, just write, make it as good as you can, and then follow the route that you think is best for you. For me, it was a small publisher called Encircle Publications. And you have no problem just sitting down and writing. Like it, it doesn't matter what's going on outside your door, I guess. Uh, no, I actually write in my living room. And I've done that while my kids were growing up. I've done that, and I still do that now that they've moved out, and it's a little quieter. But there's three dogs that are often, you know, poking me in the back or barking at a delivery. I put headphones on, and I sit in the corner of the living room, and I play soft jazz music because there's no lyrics and things like that to distract me, and I go into my own world, and uh, that that's very effective for me. Wow. i got to have a couple of TVs going and the music going and the dogs barking, and then I feel like writing. <laughs> you like your distractions. I like the anxiety, knowing that I've, I've got things I've got to do. So I mean, and then I'm sitting and I have to write, but I have things, and it's like stress. feels good. Did, did, you, did you find yourself pulling your hair out at any point? Yeah, that's why I don't have any. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That happened back in the 90s. God, you know, that's terrible. I had that picture of me from the 90s and, and that that woman that says, uh, oh, the hair's still the same. <laughs> Man, how harsh is that? <laughs> wow. What a nice lady. Delete. <laughs> Delete block. No, not that bad. Not that bad. <laughs> so are you doing more shows now? Are you getting out there? Are you seeing the world? Seeing people? Um, yeah, yeah, I, I am some. I've got some uh, different library gigs lined up and uh, some bookstore gigs lined up uh, with the release of Alma Gonorai coming out. Uh, one of, I guess, two of the events that I'm looking forward to most is the book launch celebration of Velma Gone Awry, which I'm mm -hmm. going to hold at my local golf course. And hopefully the weather will be good enough that we'll be outside on the deck and maybe some music playing and I'll have my friends and family come and maybe some strangers in the wild will show up and we'll have some drinks and some appetizers and, uh, you know, talk about books and uh, or, or talk about golf or talk about something else. So I'm looking forward to that one very much. And then I've got another gig coming up in a couple weeks that is a mystery-making gig uh, at a library where myself and two other authors will be on a panel and 
people from the audience will give us different clues like you know names of people and murder weapons and things like that and with their help we will construct a mystery uh around that and that 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 sounds like it would be a good time so those those are two of the top ones i'm looking forward to right now Boy, you're like Lady Gaga. You got all these big things going on. <laughs> People always yeah. say that me and Lady Gaga are like two peas in a pod. I was going to say, well, because you look <laughs> a lot like her. Actually, she looks like you because you're older than her. So she, she's copying you. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. She, she's a, a, a poser. Yeah. You know. That's right. Yeah, we know you're the real one. <laughs> <laughs> well, is it, 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 so those, those events really help, don't they? Like, where, where, where do you get out of those events? Um, you know, I, I think you certainly get promotion and publicity. You, you know, for if 20 people show up at the library, that probably means that a couple hundred people saw the promotion and publicity and uh, have considered your book at that point. They just didn't want to bother coming to see you at that particular day uh, for whatever reason. Because they've met you before. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll, you know, even bigger than that, I think, is I sit behind my desk every day writing, and I sit at a computer, and I don't get out into the real world. So I really enjoy actually going to do events, whether it be a reading or a talk or a mystery-making panel or one and any of these other things, just to interact with people and uh, talk about books and, you know, more importantly, about my book. So, you know, I'm the center of attention, so it feels good. Do you, do you think that uh, being out there with people and, and, and having conversations, do you, do you think that it, that it helps you to, um, to, to write dialogue better, kind of refills the, uh, the well by having conversation? Um, I, I, I'm not sure that that is the case. Certainly not writing the 1920s. I think the dialogue's no, very yeah. different. <laughs> Well, certainly the people that go out to see him aren't going to be. And, I, <laughs> and, you know, my mainly mysteries, I, I tend to have a sort of a more blue-collar crowd in my books than attend library events. So I'm not sure the mm. dialogue really corresponds. Over. <laughs> <laughs> it's back to the sensitivity, too much story. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Ah. Uh, uh, what, what, but it's it's good. It's a good thing to do. It's good to get out there and do that sort of stuff. I um, um I just don't do that. Um, but I don't like people. People don't like me. So I find that hard to believe. That's a, oh, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> they line up to call call me names, <laughs> throw stuff at me. Well, they like to call. They like right. they call you names. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah. And it's fun for a while. Uh, everybody has a role to fulfill. Exactly. I understand what mine is totally. So so what's next for you? How many are you, you doing a year? How many books can you write in a year? Uh, I seem to be on a trend to do three a year. As I, I sort of briefly mentioned to you that, you know, April 12th, which may be today, is the release of Velma Gone Awry. And then in August, I will have Mainly Wicked, the fifth in my Mainly Mystery series, come out. And in December, I will have Pirate Trap, the fifth in my Clay Wolf Trap series, come out. And uh, off to the publisher already is the sequel to Velma Gone Awry, which is going to be called, unless they change it, City Gone Askew. 
and uh, I'm currently writing something new that might be a standalone, might not be, about halfway through, and I'm at that point that I don't really know what it is. Uh, <laughs> it's sort of a, a modern-day Robin Hood. So we'll, we'll, we'll see where that goes, and hopefully it'll all come together and make sense to me before the ending, and uh, I'll be able to send that off to the publisher as well. How do you know when your book's done? Like, is there a certain point that you just, you're done, you're finished? Like, how many times do you keep going over it? Oh, for, for editing. I've sort of fallen yeah. into a routine that I do three edits myself, which I'm not sure how much good that does, because I'm not sure that I'm much of an editor, but, you know, I try and do three edits myself to clean it up, you know, like getting ready for the housekeeper. And then I have an editor that I pay to do three more edits on it. And that's all before it goes to the publisher, where they will do three more edits on it. So if it, by the time it's all done and told, there will be nine edits on average of my books. Wow. I, I know that yeah. I think it was last year or when, whenever there was one point where I was listening to Dean Kuntz on your show, and he was talking about his editing process, and I believe he was saying that he, you know, would not go on to the next page until one page was perfect. And, yeah. uh, you know, so by the time his book was done, he didn't need to do any edits. And he was saying something to that effect. And, you know, I was listening to your show, and I stopped and I thought about that. And then I just shook my head and said, <laughs> What does Dean Kunz know? Right. I know. He, he's barely got yeah. a book out. I mean, know? 450 million copies sold. He doesn't know yeah. anything. You know. <laughs> no, but those, those, but he doesn't tell you. Those copies, they all, he bought. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, this is not, you know, people, real people out there buying it. He's all. But I guess that's just. He's all show. That goes to showcase, you know, that I think everybody's writing style is different. So that, you know, you'd kind of asked me before on advice, but, you know, my advice is just write and don't try and copy somebody else. And, you know, there's a lot of people that read, you know, how to write a book, you know, manuals, whether it's Stephen King or Ian Lamont. It's different for everybody, and, you know, you've got to find your style and your inner voice and, you know, say what you want, and that's going to be effective for you. And if there's enough people that are as strange as you are that like what you write, then you'll do well financially, but if not, you won't. But at least you'll have written what you wanted to write. There you go. Says it all. So, what do you, so where do people find you on social media and website and, um, you know, restaurants, bars? Where, where do people uh, find you? At bars, it's usually front and center. Um, <laughs> restaurants, you know, I like a darker corner. But uh, my website is www.matcost.net. Um, Facebook, I can be found under, um, you know, Matthew Cost as I can on Instagram. Those are places, you know, certainly the easiest is my website, and then you can link to everything else, including my email and phone number. I haven't gotten big enough to have to hide my phone number yet, so I occasionally get the phone calls from fans who, you know, 
uh, tell me how much they love my books, and that's always appreciated. And I don't, I haven't really gotten anybody that called or has emailed me to say how much they hate me. So, so far we're doing okay. Yeah. Well, let's try and get that changed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's try to get some, some action here. Okay. Let's get some people. Send them, send them all hate mail. <laughs> tell them, tell, find a mistake in his book and it, let them know. It's the two of you that I'm most concerned about out there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-huh. Some, you know, Good really country. sharp criticism signed, this is not Al Warren. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. I don't waste my time with that. But anyway, well, of course, we'll have everything up for people to find you and uh, hunt you down like the animal <laughs> you are. And, um, well, let's see. Now, the new book, Velma Gone Awry. This is by award-winning author. Not just an author. He's award-winning, Mr. Matt Cost. So thank you for being here. Well, again, thank you very much for having me on the show. Your show is fantastic, and it's it's a proud moment for me to be here. Thanks, Matt. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This is the production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.